Annabelle Crab, we meet again. Lee Sales. <laughs> what I love is that, like, I leave town in, I think, it's not even 12 hours. It's, it's really very, very soon now that I am, like, getting out and taking my children with me. And uh, we just had to get together for this one last. <laughs> and can I just paint a picture? Nation. Can I just paint a picture for the chatters? So, you, what time's your flight in the morning? Got to be at the airport about uh, seven thirty, I think. Okay, chatters. It's now eight p.m. Yes, a, it is on a Friday night. Yeah, it is. Not only mm-hmm. is she recording a podcast with me, I'm she's then going up. to a party. I am. I'm going to the rap party of our show that we just finished shooting really about 36 hours today uh, ago and I've been in the studio recording voiceover for this show uh, most of today. And are you allowed to publicly say what the show is and what it's about? Yeah. Okay. okay. So the show is called Back in Time for Dinner, which is just a title of genius. And it's about food and history and uh, it's – Set in Sydney in this family that is the greatest casting decision ever made by a production company ever. Um, this lovely family called the Ferones, mum, dad and three kids, have handed over their house. They live in Mortdale um, in Sydney and they've handed over the house, literally handed the keys over. There's the introduction. It's like a big Fat bikey outside because <laughs> oh, we live in the bikey. Quite full on, yeah. You know we live in the bikey um, capital of Sydney, right? Our suburb. Correct. Really? Yeah, I know. I knew you'd be surprised. I am surprised yeah. by that. It's because you've hardly ever been shot. But um, <laughs> yeah. it's true. We are in bikey capital. I thought everybody around here had ironic tats, but what, their actual tats, are they? Yeah, there's nothing ironic about those tats. Love. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a family. Anyway, uh, they've handed over the house and (laughs) the production team goes in and like strips out their house and rebuilds it on the inside as a 1950s house. (laughs) So it's quite open plan. Right. And the production team's just gone, do, 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 do. Now you live in a house that is totally uh, divided up into a teeny little dining room and a Mm -hmm. teeny little kitchen. Mm Mm-hmm. And teeny little sitting room. And now you just have to live in that for a week. And then we'll go back in and we'll rip it out and build it as a 60s house. And you'll have to live in that. (sighs) And they have to live in it and only cook the food of that era. And only use the implements of that era. And they have to obey the gender roles of that era. And what's happened to this family over like seven weeks of shooting in successive decades. It's been so interesting. Mm. Anyway, so my role is I'm the sort of host, so I turn up every now and again with the refreshments and kind of, you know, let them cry on my shoulder <laughs> and, you know, generally see how they're managing. Oh. Is it half hour or hour episodes? It's an hour. Oh, it's, okay. It's a series of seven uh, – it's seven episodes, one hour each. And when's it going to be on? Uh, late May. It's – Really interesting. And the family's great. They are just so curious and up for anything and they just are subjected to some dreadful stuff over the decades. But it's, yeah, 
Fabulous. Now, as part of painting the picture of our uh, evening, I left out one of the most important things, which is what I'm wearing. <laughs> what are you wearing? <laughs> Come on. So I get a text Go message on. from Annabelle Crabb earlier this week. She goes, I've just run past your house. I've dropped off a bag of kids' clothes, left it out the front. And uh, your door was open and I just dropped it out the front, which I know is massively rude because I could actually see you. I'm just, <laughs> I know. But I'm just like, I don't have a, I don't have a second to talk. To even like, say hello no, that's to right. one of your dearest friends. Correct. So, and I, the thing is that you have done that exact thing to me. Of course, before, I have. So yep. I, knew I do it all it was the time. Totally fine. Yep. So also, I had to be like, honestly, this recording studio where I was doing voiceover for this program was like right over the other side of town. I was already, you know, in a highly strung state of <laughs> just twanging stress. So I was just like, I'm just dropping this bag. I'm not talking about bastard because <laughs> I'm listening to the news. So she texted me. I've dropped a bag of stuff out the front of your place. Mm. And a frump nighty, it says. And that's all it basically says, and a frump nighty. So I'm thinking, why she drops me off a frump nighty? Anyway, so I've put it on. Mm. It certainly is frumpy. It's a gigantic – the closest thing that I think it is like is what – it's pretty much identical to what Marina Abramovich was wearing in The Artist is Present. That's right. Except it's black <clears throat> and not red. It's like neck-to-knee coverage. No, neck-to-ankle coverage, actually. Yeah. I've got one in grey marl and I love it. I love it uncontrollably. How did you get onto these things? It's – I bought it from a website that just sells like, you know, you know, it's not a good website. It's one of those ones that you you just like, well, this seems suspiciously cheap and and I don't really shop there very often. But for a neck-to-knee coverall situation (laughs) – and um, are you wanting me to never have sex with anyone ever again? Or? That's my aim, yes. <laughs> uh, I will come and live with you here and we will just be entirely chaste but also covered from neck to ankle. I actually think any men who walked God, in so good. would not only be turned off, they might actually even be scared. Well, I'm actually dressed quite attractively right now because I'm on my way to the party. You, however... <laughs> You do look like you have given up on life. And I've helped you with that. <laughs> I tell you what, though, I do love, particularly when the season turns, I do love a garment that just, you know, says, hi, I'm here for you, down to the wrist. And it's not even a shortened wrist. It's just a full wrist coverage and then to the ankle. Look, so I, if I, you'd yeah. like to put a woolly sock on underneath, that's fine. Oh, look, you could be wearing really sexy underwear. underwear. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that, you could be wearing a riot of lingerie. I'm sure that there is. From the look of you, I'd say probably not. <laughs> I'm sure that there's some sicko out there with a fetish for, you know, sacks who'd be into it. But no, look, it's it is the sort of thing that I'd live in. And do you know what the greatest asset is? It pockets. has pockets. Yeah, I know. Yes. You still do look quite lovely. <laughs> You've still got nice hair from your show. I do have nice hair from my show. Yeah. Um, that will right. be in ruins by dawn. Now anyway. you've got you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did. So we did uh, do a couple of recent podcasts, mm-hmm. but I did with a sense of urgency contact you uh, a day or two ago just to you say, did. God, do you think we could squeeze one more in before <laughs> I go? I feel. Why is the I feel tone like of a this DH thing? Lawrence flower, <laughs> like a bud? The- 
Why is the tone of this thing just, it's like that time in that Perth hotel room. No, it's because I've just been at Gwen's house. Oh. She gave me a glass of wine and just some horrible innuendo. That's that's pretty much where I'm coming from. Hi, Gwen. Hi, Gwen. Um, Okay, now I'll tell you what I want to talk about because you told me the other day that you watched it with your kids. The Karate Kid. Oh, yeah. So I just, we had a really lazy Easter where – because we're going away, I just was like, okay, I'm going to eradicate pantry moth from my kitchen. Oh, that took God, about a day and a half. No, no, yes. okay, I'm just saying, <laughs> yes. as you know, that that happened. It took a long time. Good. By the way, they're back. Like it's oh, just, it's really. I saw a lot of yeah. social media about this when I, I was away. I know. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. Seriously, that's happening a lot. Um, but it was really good. We didn't go anywhere. We babysat some awesome dogs of our friends. So, like, we did lots of walking around parks and, um, you know, making animals jump for treats and things like that, which is, like, very seldom happens in my house ordinarily. So that was good. And um, on one of the nights I just thought, I'd sit down and watch a family movie, but not one of these sort of like loathsome contemporary ones. I want to go back and watch a really daggy old movie. And like I've got a bunch of movies that I'm like lining up for when my 11-year-old daughter is like ready to watch them. Um, like what sort of stuff? Oh, look, just like I, I really want to watch High Society. Oh, yeah, okay, right. Philadelphia yeah. Story. Right, right, right. Like those sorts of basically anything with Jimmy Stewart in it kind of films. Right. Um, I also want to watch a series of sort of Shakespeare adaptations. Right. I've really like got her prepped for that by getting her to read like those Lambs adaptations of Shakespeare's stories, which she's right into. So then I'm going to get her into some sort of modern adaptations like – that he, that great Heath Ledger, Julia Stiles film, Ten Things I Hate About You, which right. is like a, a teen adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. It's, mm-hmm. I love that movie. It's right. super trash, but I love it. Um, anyway, so – but I needed something that my eight-year-old and five-year-old would also be sort of reasonably okay to watch. Mm. Anyway, I was just sort of like flicking around and thought, The Karate Kid. I had never seen The Karate Kid when I was a kid. Oh. I know. Why? It was one of my and my brother's favourite films. Okay. Well, so I never saw it. I blame my mother for that. Like we just weren't really – we didn't go to the cinema very much. When we did, it was a big palaver and we always had to take home-baked biscuits. Like there was none of this sort we of – We had it on a VHS when we recorded it off the TV. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So – Anyway, I don't know. Yeah. I never. I just missed it. I didn't see it. Right. So um, we sat down and watched it as a family, and it was like one of those great occasions where I just hadn't seen it either. So and it was, so does that mean for any time in the past forty five years when someone said to you, "Wax on, wax off," you've had no idea no, what they're talking I know. about? I know what that means. Like you know, <laughs> right. I'm one of those kids that grew up in a country area, so I'm like, I've never seen a car wash, but I understand <laughs> from popular culture that it looks like this. You really do right. evolve. Like you get you get very adept at filling in your gaps. Right. Yeah. I'm like, what's a cappuccino? <laughs> so that when sort you... of thing. So like I'm like, oh, yeah, what's on? Yeah, Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, totally. Yeah, all over it. The crane. Yeah. I've always been what keen on – What about the end bit? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I've always been keen on bonsai since that film. But anyway, so so what did you actually – You are keen on bonsai for so I many... love bonsai. Wow. That is just the least surprising thing I've ever heard. So you're just 
controlling the natural environment, <laughs> stunting it and bending it to your will. I have no idea why that would appeal to you. Um, excuse me. It what? appeals to me because it's beautiful. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Stunted. <laughs> crippled by your dominant <laughs> Sure, yeah. I just want to point out we're not drinking wine while we're doing this. I'm sweating under this I know. goddamn sack. Can I just um, – I'm going to not only am I going to look unattractive, I'm going to have got like a third of a glass of mineral water yeah. and you've served me a, like a little bowl <laughs> that has what appears to be the ass of an Easter bunny, yeah. like a chocolate I, bunny. I put it you on, snap the ass off it. I bought it on special today. I know. And it's, it's served in a bowl like it's a lovely snack. But actually it's, it's just the a bunny's ass. <laughs> Of a bunny. Do you know what? I don't know why wow. I did this today. I So I'm in Coles getting the groceries. Fortunately, I've already eaten. <laughs> Otherwise, this would be incredibly tempting. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to strip off. This thing is so hot. It's like wearing canvas. <laughs> um, no, I was in Coles today. I'm walking past all the Easter stuff. I, I must have eaten a good kilo and a half of chocolate last weekend. I see that the lint bunnies are half off, so I bought a heap of them. Like, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with you? Because that's madness. I've got hundreds around my house. Like, my children are, like, love to find the chocolate but just are not that into eating it. Oh, God, really? It's just they just sit around and get all until I make not very nice, you know, bread and butter pudding out of them. Right. So bread and butter pudding's okay. okay five minutes ago. <laughs> I was going to say, it's okay sometimes, apparently. No, it's never okay. So um, back to the Crater Kids. So what did you think? Does it stand up well? Oh, I loved it. Oh, so okay. good. Yeah, no, I loved it. And the kids, we had that great moment towards the end where the kids are just like so overjoyed that they're staying up late watching a movie and everyone's watching it. And with there's popcorn's been served. So, of course, popcorn's everywhere. Right. And... They're all standing up on the um, arms of the sofa doing the crane (laughs) and then falling off and like injuring themselves a bit but then just sort of like going, yay. Did everyone cry when Daniel's son knocked him out in the final round? So I've talked to you about the spoiler thing before. And you seem <laughs> sorry. not to be able to just <laughs> like, go sorry. With- if anyone hasn't seen The Karate Kid, just please go and see The Karate Kid. Um, okay, but see, two weeks ago that would have been me yeah, listening know, and just going, oh, you're what? a weirdo. I've been like really trying to get around to watching that for 30 years. Mr. Miyagi is such a great so character. Yeah. We absolutely loved that film. Um, and it's just got very, <laughs> like a lot of timeless films, it has just really relatable themes about not fitting in yeah. and being bullied and and also everyone of course loves an underdog story sure. triumphing and yeah so it's just absolutely fantastic and I think also that I was if I saw that film today I would probably assume that yeah and spoiler alert that when he's doing mm. the crane at the end that oh yeah it's a Hollywood film of course he's gonna win blah blah but at the time because I was young and so I wasn't cynical yet it was thrilling when he wins, it was really tense. You're thinking, oh, you don't know if he's going to win or triumph or what over these um, Completely, because so. he's lost before. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, oh, yeah, God, I really cool. enjoyed it. My, my brother and I used to watch it all the time. Right. Okay. What else you got? So I've been doing this kind of white-knuckle reading uh, jag because the Sydney Writers' Festival is coming up. Mm-hmm. And I always like, you know, you go to a Writers' Festival and – Sometimes it's the worst thing. Like you go and see someone talk, and you're so into them, and you think, "God, why didn't I get organised and yeah. read that book before I saw them talk?" Because yep. like you feel like 
afterwards you then read it and you think, damn it, I would have got so much more out of that session yeah. if I just read that book. So yep. I have been bizarrely proactive about this Writers' Festival because I've picked out a bunch of books that I really like the look of and I've just knuckled down and I've read them. Yeah. Anyway, so um, there's a few books that I've read that have already been very mind-blowing. One of them is one that you won't read and yeah. it, you won't read it, I suspect, for the same reason that you didn't read um, uh, a, little a Little Life. Life yeah. Because it's a really full-on book. Uh, but it is. Violent. Also, or... yes. Right. Um, but it's also bizarrely beautiful. Right. Have we already talked about this? This book? Which um, book? What book is it? My Absolute Darling. Who's it by? Um, the one with the Nabokov ending. Oh, we have talked about this. Oh, God. Yeah, have... sorry. Yeah. Oh, and you said you're, you're, you're amazed that he can write in the voice so well of a 14 year old. We have talked about it. Yeah, we it. have. We talked about it in the last podcast. Dear God. Yeah. This um, is why I need a holiday. Anyway, still still read it or don't if, you know, you're um, right. um, worried by tricky books. It's, yeah, it's an incredible book and it's, um, it's, Puzzling and fascinating and very gripping. Um, but anyway, I will now tell you the next one that I read, which I yes. know that I've told you that I was going to read, which is one by um, Min Jin Lee called Pachinko. Mm-hmm. And um, this is uh, one that I've since completed and I read it in about three days, even though it's quite a long book. Right. But it's a sort of a rolling family drama that is so gripping and absorbing that it's one of those ones that you start reading and you're like, do-do-do-do-do, plinkety-plonk, and then all of a sudden you're just like, I'm going to bed early. Oh, right. I need a long and complicated visit to the bathroom. (laughs) I'm just going out to uh, sort the recycling. (laughs) I'm taking this book with me. You know, like you're really sneaking away to read it. And I think it – I finished in about four days and it was just so compelling that I couldn't be without it. Mm. Yeah. But it's also um, one of those great novels that – is uh, on one hand it's a really compelling story but it also tells you about a period of history that like in my case I really knew nothing about. Really. What period is it? So like? it's um, it starts off um, in um, World War II and it's about expatriate Koreans living in Japan. I mean, the story starts in Korea, um, but the protagonist of the story, loosely the protagonist, this woman called Sunya, um, moves to Japan because no one's got any food in Korea. It's sort of dominated by Japan um, and the expatriate life in Japan isn't that much cheerier, but it's sort of a bit more manageable. And then as the generations roll on you start to realize that there's this pattern where these these korean expats in japan um in many cases have been born there but aren't recognized as citizens they don't have any rights they're really looked down upon and sneered at and you sort of start to understand this kind of subculture that is not really in our you know recollection of the history of that period in any way front of mind for Australians. Mm. And so it's just transports you to this 
um, scene of uh, deprivation and like real battles from a particular ethnic group in a place where you hadn't really necessarily thought that much about unless you've made a particular study of, of, of that era um, in that particular um geographical region just it's great fascinating yeah. i reckon sometimes if you're reading a novel that's set in a period that you know nothing about but it's a very gripping novel because you just learn a lot because it pulls you into you know what i mean so that's exactly been... what this book is like and mm. it's so it's not even like it jumps it, it it passes through several generations and the the challenges and the dramas and the events that are that befall um this sort of loose family grouping are all like very of their own eras. You know, they're like modern or they're um, sort of um, some of them are like quite um, uh, basic privations, but it all takes place in this um, a circumstance that's like very new to to someone who hasn't like read closely about the history of that region. So it was like a history lesson um, that was hugely thought provoking whilst also just being this rip roaring family drama. I just loved it. It was such a good book. Mm. And um, I read a little bit about how the author um, went about researching it. And she um, started off writing, I think a sort of a, a short story or an essay and then um she moved to Japan and then um, started interviewing people and started building the concept of this novel. I think it took her about 15 years to write, you mm. know, and it is so textured and layered and, you know, it's hard for a reader like me to judge whether it's authentic, but it, it certainly felt you could feel the work in it even though it wore the work lightly as a narrative. It's just right. – um, it's a beautiful book, really beautiful. Um I read something over Easter that I also really loved, way more lowbrow than that. Um, it was called An Anatomy of a Scandal by Sarah Vaughan. Oh, okay. I saw you, you, you like tweeted a picture of the cover or something. I yeah, because I was just, I just tweeted what I was reading and watching over Easter. Um, it was the perfect holiday read. And oh, if you okay. need something for the plane, I'd highly recommend it. Okay. It's, it's, I've seen it for sale at the airport. In fact, I looked at it and thought, well, that's a catchy title. It's, it's really good. It's a courtroom drama. It's one of the more gripping but easy sort of read. That's why I say it was a perfect holiday or perfect yeah. plane read. The basic premise is um, a very – a cabinet minister, British cabinet minister who's a young, youngish, good-looking guy gets pinged for having an affair with one of his staffers okay. um, and that becomes public and so, so he has – Surely sort of, that could not happen. Like, is that, It's very it seems, unbelievable. It seems hugely It's like the shape of water, really. You yeah. just got to suspend belief. Um, <laughs> she, so uh, he gets pinged. They sort of ride out the scandal of that and then the next thing the I love staffer, that you've just like – essentially compared the idea that a woman would have sex with a fish to the idea that a woman would have sex with Barnaby Joyce. Is that what you just did? That's no, that's what you did. Highly appropriate for a person in your role <laughs> as one of the most beautiful women on television. Oh, God. Um, not in this get-up. Um, but then so they have that bit of scandal and they think they're through it and then the next thing the woman who he's had the affair with uh, he's charged with rape. 
she says that actually he raped me in our last sexual encounter. And then it becomes a court Mm -hmm. case and it's sort of a bit about consent and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's very contemporary issues um, and it's just done in a really gripping and interesting way. Just, yeah, very, very ripped through it it in 24 hours. Then you threw it in the bin. Straight in the bin. (laughs) I left it in the holiday house that I was staying for the next person. Oh, that's a good thing. I like to do do that. that. Yeah. Um, because I think with those sorts of books where, where it's just like a sort of a night of passion and then you're just completely spent and you have no further interest in the husk of the <laughs> oh my of God. the item. What is going on with you? Nothing at all. I'm about to go on holidays. But, um, but I do think there is a certain kind of book that you know you're totally finished with, like when it's yep. just a sort of a gripping tale and you just think, Okay, I don't need this anymore. I will uh, like pass that on to somebody else with no regrets. And it's also it's a sort of like I know that um, our standards of books that we hold on to and b- books that we don't oh, are completely. very different. No, no, completely. I think that, um, and we've discussed it before as well. Like for a holiday read, I want a plot driven, um, easy thing that I'm really not going to think about again. Like in two weeks' time. In fact, I had to Google this book to remember the title. Like, yeah, it's sort of it's like just a you know, hamburger. It's like yum at the time, but just totally forgettable. You're not going to be talking about it in a year's time. But um, I had a long drive for when I was on holidays and I went back to um, a couple of old favourites, which are Richard Feidler's podcast, Conversations, and Alec Baldwin's podcast. You can never go wrong with those two podcasts. Um, I won't go into them all in great depth, but Feidler, there's two recent episodes that were great. One is uh, an Adelaide woman who you would probably know because all you Adelaide people know each other um, is on a plane in Burma and it crashes. Um, she's traveling with her boyfriend and it's about they survive it, but then they have to sort of all of their ID and all of their possessions are lost and they, they have to try to get out of Burma. Uh, it was riveting. <laughs> it was absolutely riveting. Um, I didn't hear that one, but now I just want to leave immediately and go on. It was really good. Um, the other one was a woman who works in heart surgery and heart transplants in um, Western Australia in the main hospital over there. And it was also, I mean, Richard just always asks questions that you feel like, oh, I really need to know that, even though I've never thought about it until you've yeah. actually articulated it. So just talking about what, you know, when you pull out someone's heart, for example, do you have any idea how long you can keep it out before you put it into someone else's body? It's four hours. I'd never thought about it till Richard said it. You can pa- have it in an esky for four hours and that's it. Anyway, it was super interesting. Um, and Alec Baldwin, there were two, probably both for fans of these people, but I found both really interesting. One was with Cole McLaughlin, who was Agent Dale Cooper right, on Twin Peaks, yeah. um, and he's a bit of a muse of David Lynch, but has had a sure. very varied career. Um, he was just an in- sort of weird and yet interesting guy. And the other one who I adored was Cameron Crowe, who was the director. He was the guy who was a journo for Rolling Stone magazine when he was 15. <gasps> oh. Oh, is he the one in, in that film? Almost Famous. Yeah. yeah, that's basically his life. Yeah, um, and I love that film, Oh, actually. same. It was fantastic yeah. and he directed it. And then he did Jerry Maguire and he's done various yeah. films since. But um, he has a beautiful and infectious personality and he loves two things that I love, music and film. And he's just really passionate. And, and, he's, a, and he's a journalist because he started as yeah. a journalist. Yeah. And so he sort of talks a lot about what he does with um, – you know, films and stuff now. And he he said basically he feels like everything he does, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is all journalism because to him he feels like it's all about stories mm. and f- telling stories and characters and that sort of thing. So, yeah, they were, they were both fantastic. Well, I have an alliterative book to um, report as well um, or an alliterative work, which is um, – and this is another writer who's appearing at 
the Sydney Writers Festival, a guy called Charlie Cork, who's a, a doctor, and he's written this book called Letting Go, mm. which I think you would really like. And mm. I actually, I've been meaning to talk to you about it because it's this um, – so he's a doctor and he writes from a doctor's perspective about watching people die and, like, and dealing with people who are going to die and, right. you know um, – managing people's expectations and helping them to plan for their own deaths, which is something that I think in this country we do really super badly. And this book is just – I feel like it should be handed out to anybody who's going to die, which is pretty much like just Mm -hmm. everybody, Um, because it's so sensitively and beautifully written. He tells a whole bunch of stories just about people that he's encountered. I mean like he's changed their names or whatever, but like – the thing that it really made clear to me is just in sharp relief how subjective people's expectations and um, ideas about what their death is going to be like and the things that they would like on pa- oh, on pain of death is a poor expression, the things that they really want to avoid and the things that they're prepared to put up with. So it's like a spectrum where on one end um, – Someone is like, well, do you know what? I've had a good life. Um, I'm happy to just expire. I just don't want to be in too much pain and I don't want to be a hassle to anyone. I don't want my people who love me to watch me suffering and I also don't want to suffer. So let's just not pursue anything crazy Mm. in terms of treatment because I would like to die, you know, uh, in peace. Yeah. And then on the other end there's just like I want – in, if there is any potential treatment available, I want to just exhaust every avenue. I, If there is something that is 10% likely to succeed, then let's do it. Mm. I don't care what it means, like the expense or the discomfort or whatever. And there's such a spectrum of preference in between and yet what this book really makes so – plangently clear is just the level of confusion that exists within families oh because planning also... for this stuff because sometimes like when families get to that point and they haven't really talked about it then the most dominant member of that family will generally set exactly. the scene according to their own wishes so they'll be like no you know dad would want to fight Dad would want every single thing to be done. Exactly. And this guy, like this doctor just writes about these circumstances and these heartbreaking instances where somebody who, you know, probably is feels a different way is obliged to undergo all these treatments because I the – I have seen that and I think it can be often that the person who's ill sort of doesn't want to go through treatment and the family's like, but you can't give up, you've got to fight, you know, and I think that that can yeah. be hard sometimes. I, look, I also – you know, it's obviously such a difficult thing to deal with and you're um, – even the clearest thinkers I think would find it hard to process that. Yeah. Um, I had a friend who died and – um, you know, he very wisely got the help of a psychologist yeah. to come in um, because it was at that situation where if you don't have treatment, you are going to die yeah. fairly rapidly. Um, but if you do, it's sort of you, you still will definitely die, but we just can't be sure how long it's going to extend by maybe yeah. six months, maybe 12 months. And so uh, 
the psychologist went in to sit down with him and they spent quite a bit of time talking about exactly as you just say, what are the priorities here? Um, Because there's a range of um, things like, for example, my friend's priority was um, to not lose his mental faculties. And so for some people that's very important. Some people would prioritise not being in pain ahead of that. You'd rather be unconscious. Um, So you sort of end up with a hierarchy of, say, five things. All of which are different. All of which are quite different. And then that definitely dictates what you choose. And so there was a certain clarity that came with identifying what the priorities were, but you need a professional's help to help you get to that. I think it would be extremely difficult to get there. But there was also like a gigantic amount of um, peace that came from having gone through that process. Yeah. Because it dictates then the decisions that you make. Yeah, and clarity I guess will always defeat fear and confusion like it yeah certainly takes a certain amount of courage to address it mm. yeah I don't know I just found it it was such a beautiful book to read and I don't know like I mean um both of my parents-in-law died in the last um couple of years and I just found I learned so much from the way that they confronted that process like because my father-in-law was a doctor and I remember him saying at some point when it was like really clear that he didn't have much time left and he um wanted to die at home and I remember him saying at some point I've I've helped I've been with so many people at this stage like he was really knowledgeable about the process because he'd helped so many patients through and it. do you think that helped him in his own process having yeah he was really right. he was he was he seemed almost to be without fear and that was a contagious effect um and then I think because my mother-in-law died not long afterwards and her death was also like it seems crazy to say a good death but she addressed all of these issues and she talked to her children about them and so when she died, in the end, it was at home with all of her kids around her and no one was scared, mainly because they, like everyone had sort of discussed that it was happening, you know. Mm. Like, so it's like that, um, I think that the, the whale in the bay, as um, Malcolm Turnbull would say, um, if no one is prepared to say, hey, this is going to happen, then it becomes a much greater beast than it is and anyway I mean this book I really I loved this book I thought it was so valuable and I thought that there aren't that many books around there isn't that um I don't know I think that we're a bit stunted in our culture in the way that we deal with death and it's sort of more polite or easier to avoid the reality of what's coming, you know, Mm. in these cases. And so you sort of inevitably screw things up because Mm. in the end when no one's talking about it, the person who's the most assertive sort of like plunges in and says, well, this is what's going to happen. That's so interesting. And nobody – yeah, and that is like the most memorable part of this book I think is just um, in the absence of the dying person making their – preferences known then it tends to be the most assertive person in their immediate family circle which of course makes sets the sense because like any meeting 
you know. Yeah, sure. Um, the, so, the, the, yeah, the but I had never thought of that before until you said that. Which... And so one of, the, one of the really useful things I think that um, uh, the author does in this book is just to ex- – just to suggest ways for a dying person to, without causing offence, make their um, preferences powerfully known. And mm. he recommends just using um, using the language of love and just saying, look, I love you all so much. I don't want to leave you or abandon you. And um, But, you know, this is this is what I need and – I need looking after now and this is how you can look after me and this right. is how you can show your love for me and, you know, right. this is how we can, you know. Um, anyway, it, it was just, yeah. In my book. book that's coming out, I've interviewed somebody who lost two wives, one in a sudden horrifying accident and the second wife of cancer. And um, he said – there was no – so with the first one there was no time to prepare. Yeah. The second one there was a lot of time to prepare. He said the preparing, and he, he described it as almost pre-grieving because he yeah. said the only way you could do it was you had to accept the reality that the person was going to die. You yeah. had to let go of all of the like we're going to fight it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and he said it was a much better – the aftermath was much better – the second time around when you had actually yeah. he said it was unbelievably difficult to do it and to have all the conversations but he said the aftermath was better um for having sort of taken the medicine up front if you like yeah um so yeah it's it's very complex and difficult stuff is that an australian book or, yeah right yeah. okay yeah it's a it's a really good What's book. What's the author's name? Charlie Cork. Letting Go, it's yep. called. Okay, I'll look that up. Yeah. Um, before we run out of time and you go to your party, um, you just two other things that I'll I did. that front night. <laughs> two, two other things that I did yeah, over Easter. A <laughs> little bit of television viewing. I watched two episodes of the remake of Rom- Romper Stomper, which is on Stan. Oh, right, okay, yeah. It's, it's very well done and I'm – you know how sometimes you see a remake of something and you think, oh, man, that is such a good idea. So they've basically taken, you know, so the original Rumpa Stomper was sort of neo-Nazi skinheads. Yeah. This is um, hard right patriot type, um, you know, fascists basically, right. <clears throat> um, the sort of, you know, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim um, yeah. brigade. And it just, the whole vibe and atmosphere just lends itself so well to that same story but sort of, modernized in that sort of movement um really strong performances from everybody and just very compelling piece of work um you know violent and and dark but really interesting um i'm also deep into a series called and i just can't wait till you leave so i can start watching it (laughs) (laughs) called called occupied um it's another scandy um uh sort of oh yes yeah I was going to say thriller. I guess thriller is the right word. Um, oh my God, the, I can't stop coughing. Sorry. The premise, it's Norwegian. The premise of course is, it is. The yeah. premise is. A fish is left <laughs> the premise is on a lawn. It's snowing yeah. and dark. No. Um, the a fire is burning. Norway has a newish prime minister. He's been mm-hmm. elected on a platform of um, converting the country to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also decided that I'm going to f- shut off the sort of pipelines out of the North Sea that right. go to the rest of the EU. Oh. No one's getting their oil and gas through Norway anymore Um, and we're having this. We've got our sovereign wealth fund so you can all just go get knotted. (laughs) We're having our 
thorium, I think is the name of the element, lead, oh, renewable energy, blah, blah, blah. Thorium. Anyway, so I'm not, this is not a spoiler because it happens within the first 10 minutes. Prime Minister's leaving some function, kidnapped into his helicopter by these militia-looking dude. Not militia, like militant, you know, sort of Presumably secret dealers. No, Russians. Oh. Russian special forces. They're a very popular villain right now. They sit, they, are, they sit him up, they open the laptop, There's the, and it's the Russian foreign minister, so it's like a state-sanctioned kidnapping. The Russian foreign minister says, you're going to reopen those pipes because the rest of the EU is filthy because they need their – their yep. energy supplies, you're going to reopen that stuff or we're occupying your country. Well, we're going to bomb the, you know, FUCK out of your country. Um, and if you agree, we're occupying your country so we can make sure that it happens. And then he's like, well, this is outrageous. I want to speak to, you know, the German foreign minister or whatever. And they go, well, and, you know, they're basically all there. And, and then they go, here, you can talk to your mate, the Swedish foreign minister. And he's like, what – Berta, you're, you're in on this too. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I am. We're all in on it. We want our oil and gas. Um, and so they're like, you can you can go out. We're going to drop you back into the forest or whatever and you can go and we're going to occupy you or we're going to bomb you. It's up to you. So he goes back to the cabinet and he says we have to uh, – we're going to be occupied. We have to do it because otherwise we're going to, you know, tens of thousands of citizens are going to die. I can't justify it. We're going to have to just live with this. And so that's the premise and then oh. – it's Gosh. basically about the occupation of Norway. If you told me you could make a riveting series about energy policy, I would have laughed in your face. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, but this is Norway where they have a popular series that is just like a single shot of a wood fire burning, right? <laughs> what? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Isn't it Norway? That No idea. Never I'm pretty it. sure it's Norway where there is a cult television series that is about the stacking of wood and the making of home fires and, like, literally this show is just a single shot of a home fire burning and... It seems so apt that that's been um, raised in an episode where we've talked about David Lynch and Kyle MacLachlan because it just feels I'm so... Sure it's Norway. Oh, look, you know, my face is going to be very red when it turns out that it's some <laughs> other, you know, hilarious... So that's on Netflix. It's called Occupied. Uh, I don't think the wood really, log fire really burning good. one is on Netflix. I think it's on it's on Norway. Actually, Occupied Netflix. would be good on your plane trip as well because you can just look at the subtitles. It doesn't matter oh that it's God, noisy I'm running plane. out of things to, like, I'm running out of space. I've, I've already overcommitted about 30 times. Oh. These precious hours on because I'm gonna re- I really want to read Trent Dalton's book. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yep. I've started and, that. Yeah, uh, I'll save anyway. it to you. Um, a couple of things that I've been meaning to tell you about for like ages, and I just need to just get them off my chest before they become ancient history. Yeah, um, is uh, when I went to the um, I went to Adelaide to do the um, state election broadcast. Mm-hmm. This is going back a couple of weeks now, but um, while I was there, I snuck out in the Adelaide Festival to see one thing only, mm-hmm. which is scandalously few things because there were so many good things on at that festival and at the Fringe. But I went to see um, a dance performance um, uh, called Benelong mm-hmm. uh, by Bangara. Oh, okay. Wow. It was it was so great mm. and so it told you know without words as you do in dance um it, it, it told the story of Benelong who was you know um an aboriginal elder who was there at the arrival of european settlers and his he was kind of co-opted a little bit and drawn into um uh the colonist sort of society and he was kind of like a go-between but always sort of existentially tortured by his 
status between the two worlds. And he was eventually like dragged off to London to go and, you know, do the rounds. Anyway, this dance piece just so beautifully and heartbreakingly captured this crisis of identity of this guy. And I suspect like, cause he's got two identities really been long, you know, like his John Howard's old electorate is named after him. He's kind of this sort of famous Aboriginal person who um, was very influential in early um, government structures in Australia. But this performance also looked at how it was for him going back to his community and Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was incredibly affecting. And the guy who um, played the role of Ben Long, this guy's called um, Bodine Riley Smith, was just extraordinary. It was just, mm. yeah, it was a great, great performance. Um, now, I can't believe it's nearly quarter to nine. Oh, and God, is it? I'm supposed to be home yeah. in bed by now. Yeah, I, that's, I can't believe that you're now just going to a party. I know. That is – When we yeah. organised this, it was so good. You're like, my kids are going to be in bed by 7.30, so I'll arrive at 7.30. I'll have you at the, out the door by 8.10. Well, um, oh, yes, not happy with then you. you sent me a message saying like, at 12 minutes past seven saying, the kids are asleep, come over. I'm like, what? You're completely <laughs> – you're 18 minutes out of our agreed, you know. Anyway. I just thought because I was running early – the quicker oh, I would just be available. I did. I thought, I thought packing, you'd be sitting out the front you know, just and waiting. And my passport. So. Sitting out the front waiting for me to just give you the okay to come well, in. Well, there's one bunny's ass re- one re- remaining one in this uh, bunny bowl. Cheek I'm not touching you it, have it because no, really? I don't want it. Oh, God, I never wanted it. ungrateful. Okay. Um, okay. Well, you have an awesome trip. Thank you. Cop your Enjoy your night in that frump. I will. Bye. <laughs> Bye.